want to uh, mention VBS this week was fantastic. It was uh, honestly the, some of the most enthusiastic that our, that our leaders have ever been, and I really appreciated that. And, and uh, we are going to celebrate that a little bit more next week, and so probably have Kate lead us in a song, and we'll show a, a little bit of a slideshow, but because we had VBS this week, it kind of cut into our time to get that done for this morning. And so next week, you're going to see the pictures, you're going to see some of the goofy dances, and we will uh, we'll celebrate what God did, but God did great things. And it was fantastic. But the truth is, while some ministry is fantastic and it feels good and we get excited about it, isn't it true that sometimes religion, even Christianity, feels unfulfilling? It kind of feels like sometimes... Why am I doing this at all? Maybe you look around and, and you see other people who call themselves Christians and you say, well, they're not really living for Jesus. There's nothing really that different about their life. There is nothing distinct about the faith that they proclaim to have. And so why should I make great efforts to live for Jesus? Or maybe, maybe you've, you've just been devastated by something in your life. You've been hurt by whatever it might be. And, and you just think to yourself, man, I'm, I, I was trying to do my best to serve God. And then he let this happen. And I don't really think it's worth it anymore. I mean, what's the point if this is what God is going to do to me? Or maybe it's, it's just like this and this kind of ebbs and flows in my life and it's something I have to fight against. You like really, you get on fire to serve God and, uh, and you really work at it and you're just like, God, oh, let's do something amazing and I'm going to read the Bible more and I'm just pumped about this Jesus thing. And, and then after a while, whatever, for whatever reason, you just, you kind of look back and you think, man, I was so excited about that Jesus thing. I mean, maybe for some of you it's been like years and you're like, I, it just used to be so cool and I, I really was into that Jesus thing. I don't know what happened. I don't know what's taken place in my life. And, and, and what you see in your life maybe is that, that, that the faith that you have, it doesn't feel distinct. It doesn't feel like it separates you from everybody else in the world. And you can look at, at the world around you and you can see that their lives are not much different than yours. Neither in the blessings that they are getting by God, maybe they have seemingly more blessings than you, or by the way in which they live their lives. And you think, well, I call myself a Christian, but I don't really see any difference in my life versus everybody else. There is no distinction. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to study the book of Malachi. And Malachi really speaks to this idea. He speaks to the question of why isn't God blessing me? Why isn't something better going on in my life when I'm trying to live for God? And he also speaks to this idea of kind of half-heartedly going at Christianity. And I think that we're going to see that perhaps there is more to this Christian thing that maybe we are taking a hold of. And perhaps when we are done, we are going to be living out a distinct faith. Near the end of the book of Malachi, right at the end of chapter 3, it says that someday when God returns, there will be a distinction between the faithful and the unfaithful. 
And the truth is, God says that because he's saying, someday I will glorify those who are faithful and I will punish those who are not faithful. But in the meantime, before Jesus returns and that takes place, God is looking at our lives and he's asking us to be faithful, to have a faith that stands out from the rest of the world. And, and as we study over the course of seven weeks, we are going to see what that looks like and how we can obtain that how we can set ourselves apart from the rest of the world, how we can look entirely different, how our Christianity can lead to something far greater than just kind of look like everybody else. You see, the Jewish people that the book of Malachi is written to, the last book in the, in the Old Testament, excuse me, if you're looking for it in your Bibles, the people that it's written to, the Israelites... They were dealing with something very similar to what we deal with all the time. In fact, I, I would venture out and say that the book of Malachi is the most relevant book in the Old Testament to kind of the American way of doing things today, even within the American church. They are dealing with things that you deal with on a daily basis. I mean, for example, it talks about divorce. There's a whole section on divorce and God's thoughts about divorce and how we can, we can fix divorce. And we look at our world today and we say, yeah, that's a major problem. I need to know something about that. Or how about this one? This is something that Malachi deals with. Malachi deals with the idea that, that sometimes it looks like God is just pouring down riches and favor on people that hate him. That don't like him at all. And so if you're a Christian, a, a person of faith, you're looking and you're like, and this happens to us, right? You're like, man, all of these wicked people, all of these people who cheat and lie and push their way to the top, seems like they have all the nice cars and all the nice houses. What is the problem here? And Malachi speaks to this. And the reason it's so relevant, I think, is because the culture in which we live is not that dissimilar to the culture in which Malachi was written to, which Malachi lived. You see, here's what happened. There was an empire, the Babylonian Empire, and they came into the Israelite territory and they, they captured many of the Israelites and they took them back to Babylon. So the Jewish people are now in captivity. And then, by a stroke of luck or by God's providence, what happens is that the Persian people, they wipe out the Babylonians. And so now the Jewish people are living under Persian rule. This is good because the Persians have a much softer, a much more modern way of dealing with the people that they hold in captivity. And so they, if you read the book of Ezra, they say to the Jewish people, you can go back to your land. You can start to rebuild all the buildings that the Babylonians tore down, including your temple. So many of the Jewish people do that in Ezra 6, 13 through 18. This is what you read. Then because of the decree of King Darius... That King Darius had sent to Tetanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bezani, and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Iddo. They finished building the temple according to the command of God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month, Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, 
and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. You see, the people in the book of Ezra, they come back and they're pumped. I mean, they're like, finally, we get to go back home. We get to worship God in the way that God has called us to worship Him. We get to live the lives that we used to live before the Babylonians took us over. And they come and they build up God's temple. It's like the first thing they build. And they celebrate and they're excited. Go to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. It's like the next book after Ezra. And what you see is that the people kind of kind of are not living so much for God. Still a little bit of faith going on. Nehemiah hears about kind of the situation. He's like, man, the wall around Jerusalem hasn't been built. And so Nehemiah goes and, and he's kind of a leader in the Persian Empire, but he's a Jew. And, and he goes and he rebuilds the temple. And here's what we read in Nehemiah 12, 44 and 45. At that time, men were appointed to be in the charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the musicians and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. You see it again, right? They're zealous for serving God the way that God has called them to serve. They're looking at the commands, what God said to David and his son Solomon about how the temple was to operate. And they're like, we are going to do that wholeheartedly. We are going to do our best to serve God. Now, years later, sometime in the 500 BCs, the book of Malachi is written. And what you find in the book of Malachi is the people are not zealously serving God at all. In fact, they're doing whatever they have to do to kind of appease God, to feel good about themselves. Do you know anybody like that? In order to just kind of get by with this religion thing. But they don't really care. They're not really excited about God at all. And here's the situation for them. This is what had taken place. They'd come back. They were excited. They'd built the temple. They'd built the wall. They were pumped. And now here they are some amount of years later. They're still living under Persian rule. They're not free in their very own land. God has not, in their minds, fulfilled the promise, and that was this promise, that if you return to me, I will return to you and restore your nation. And they're going, what is going on? God doesn't really care. I mean, God doesn't, doesn't even care that, uh, that we're here and that we're trying to be obedient, kind of, sort of, and, and that we're living, you know, a kind of good life. God doesn't care. What is going on? And on top of that, even on top of their own freedom, what's taking place, a lack of freedom, is that they're now living in drought and their people are getting sick. And this is what we read at the beginning of the book of Malachi. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, the word prophecy is, is an interesting word. It actually is oracle in some of your translations. And it's an important word. It means an utterance. But when it is spoken about God, an utterance of God, it, it really reflects this kind of etymological background. It's, it's history of its word. And that is a burden, something that is heavy. And so what we're going to read in this is something that Malachi, this guy who is speaking for God, considers a burden because he's about to tell the people 
what God really thinks. You see, prophecy in the Old Testament is not first and foremost somebody telling the future of what might happen. It is, in fact, God's view on things. When you read about the prophets, it's not usually somebody saying, hey, way down the line, this is what's going to happen. That happens, yes. But most of the time, it's them saying, this is what God thinks about the situation you are living in life. And in the book of Malachi, this is so key, you're going to see things and hopefully you're going to go, man, I don't really like hearing that. I mean, that doesn't really, that's not easy for me to hear. That's not easy for me to understand. It would be much easier if I wouldn't have heard that because in some ways, the book of Malachi is a message that is heavy because it speaks so directly to our lives and the way in which we are living them. Now, here's the other part of this. It says that this message came through Malachi, and the word through means like an instrument. It's, it's really the, the conduit of, of what is about to be said. And so Malachi is not the speaker here. God is the speaker, and God is going to say to us what he thinks about situations that we are living in today. Isn't that exciting? I mean, in some way, I mean, really to hear kind of God's heart, because here's, here's what I was thinking about as I was processing this sermon. We live in a very complex world where there's just so much information, right? I mean, if you want an opinion on something, if you want to win an argument, you can always find somebody that has your opinion already. I mean, everything is out there on the internet. And so sometimes we were all to agree on this. I think we would all agree on this. Sometimes it's really difficult to decipher what is actually God's voice. I mean, people twist and turn and, and kind of just tear at the scriptures. And, and we hear these things that people say, well, God thinks this. But in Malachi, we really see a glimpse of what God would think about our society. So here comes the beginning. It's an interesting place to start when you're about to kind of rebuke people and push people. And it's this heavy burden because what it says first is this. I have loved you in verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? God looks at this people, the, the Israelite people, and he says, hey, I love you. And the people look right back at God, and this is really the form of the whole book. It's a dialogue between people and God. God says one thing, the people say, sorry, God, I don't think you're right. Explain to us how that's real. And here, right at the beginning, God offers this, this awesome statement. I mean, if I could hear vocally those words from God, wouldn't that just be awesome? I mean, I would love that. Chad, I love you. And the people look, and they say, how have you loved us? Now, it's easy for us to say, oh, those stupid people. Of course God loves you. But isn't this a feeling that, that sometimes, maybe if we were honest, we would express as well? I mean, don't you look right now at the economy that we're in and you think, does God really care? I mean, my job is about to go away or has gone away. I can't find a new job. I am being treated worse at work because they know that I can't find another job. And sometimes when it gets to the end of the day, maybe if you were to stop and you were to ponder, wouldn't you just kind of think like, does God really care? I mean, does God love me? Is he not paying attention to what I'm going through right now, to the difficulties in my life? Or how, how about this one? And I don't mean this on a theoretical, like how can an all loving God allow for bad things to happen? I mean this like in a, in a very personal way. But what about all the violence that just is going on all around us in our country today? 
I mean, I don't even blink when it shows up on my news feed on the Internet when it says that there's been a shooting at some school. I mean, it is like not even a thing for me anymore. It's like, yeah, of course there was a shooting. And honestly, like if we were to pause and stop and think about it, when it hits a little bit closer to home, like the shooting that happened at the Clackamas Mall, don't we go, do you really care, God? I mean, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't feel like you actually love me. Or how about the things that are even more personal, like, for example, the health problems that we have. Or the financial problems that we have. Or how about the death that goes on around us? I, I, I told you last week before I left uh, that I was jetting out fast. I didn't stay through the service. Because I was going to the funeral of my friend's baby son. He died at six months old unexpectedly completely. Sat through the funeral last week and they're, they're people of great faith and it was Jesus honoring. But it's easy in those moments, is it not? To say, God, this was, this was a baby. I mean, this was a six-month-old baby that did nothing wrong in our eyes. I mean, it had done nothing wrong. How can you love these people and allow for them to suffer this? I mean, how can you let this take place in my friend's life if you really love them? And I know it's, it's not one of those things that we like to express out loud because it just feels wrong, right? And some of you, I, I just, I guess I'm bringing up these things because I want you to just connect with the question. Because I know that somewhere inside of you on some days you do connect with the question even if you don't vocalize it. There are days, there are moments that we live where we go, God... I know what the Bible says, like you are love and I know your son came and died for me. But do you really love me? I mean, do you really care about me? And that's what these people ask. And that makes it relevant right from the beginning, right? Because God looks at them and it just expresses in a very real, tangible way. I love you. And they look right back at God, maybe being more honest than we are sometimes. And say, how have you loved us? I mean, here we are. We're still under Persian rule. You told us that if we were obedient, then you would restore our land. And you haven't done that yet. And now our land is suffering from drought, so that's making it worse. And the Persian governor is taking a tax on the very food that we do have, which isn't as much as it used to be. And our kids are getting sick, and some of them are dying. And why are you saying you love us? Because you haven't shown us any love. I mean, you can say it all you want, God. You can write it down in a book, but I don't feel like that today. God's response is not what we would have expected at all. But it's so real. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land of people always under the wrath of the Lord. What? <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, I was looking for a hug. You know, I mean, not that. I mean, I was looking for like, oh, look at that nice house that I gave that one guy. You know, I mean, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's different. 
I mean, that's, I mean, if Bryn's like, Chad, do you really love me? And like, well, there was these two kids once, and one of them I loved, and one of them I hated. <laughs> I mean, that's a different answer, right? So let's get a little bit of background here. First of all, I mean, the beginning was, was not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. If you were to flip to Genesis 25, 19 through 26, we meet these kids, these babies, uh, as it were, and this story. And here's what it says. It's, it's an interesting story, maybe one you know, but here it is. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? She went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And the two and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Now, here's the interesting part of the story, just kind of that, that really we need to understand. In Jewish circles and in, in the Jewish world, the first one to come out was the one who had the birthright and would get the bigger inheritance and really was the blessed one of God. And so we read there quite clearly that Esau was that guy, right? And Jacob comes out trying to be that guy, grabbing his heel. But what we see as the story unfolds is that God chose Jacob to be the man whom he started the Israelite nation through. And so you look at the story, and what you see is that by nothing they had done, I mean, they weren't out of the womb when God made this decision, and by no works, because Jacob really isn't that good of a guy as you read this story, he's got a serious lying problem. God looks at them and says, I have decided that, Jacob, you will be the one who I start the Israelite nation through. Keep following. Jacob has 12 kids. They become the 12 tribes of Israel that we read about throughout the rest of the story. Now, here's a couple things that you need to understand. Esau's family line becomes the Edomites. Jacob's becomes the Israelites. With me so far? And here's the thing about the Edomites. God does not strictly hate them. They were part of the covenant that God had made earlier to Noah. You see, there was a guy named Noah who had kids. And God said, through you, I will bless the world. These guys are in that line. You need to understand that. They were clearly part of the Abrahamic covenant, right? I mean, Abraham's going to be the father of many nations. These guys come out of that. And so they're blessed in that way. Amos speaks of... The Edomites being part of the greater Israelite community. And in the New Testament, Acts 15, we pick up on that. Obadiah pictures the Edomites as an unfaithful branch of Israel. Actually part of the nation of God. And so what's going on here? Well, here's the deal. Hebrew is a terrible language. I just, I, I, uh, maybe I'm not the one to, to make that classification because I was about as good as a D minus in Hebrew. Uh, but, uh, it's a horrible, 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 horrible language because, I mean, no vowels. 
I mean, just come on, make up a couple other letters. And and the here and this is the, this is the even more ridiculous part. I mean, the vocabulary is like 200 words, not literally, but it's like it's not a big vocabulary at all. And so what happens in Hebrew? is you end up making a lot of choices about what words means because they, they're very big on going from one side of the spectrum to the other side of the spectrum. And so when you read love and hate here, God does not hate this man. It's clear throughout Scripture that God does not hate the Edomites. I mean, he, he in fact loves the Edomites. What God is saying is that he has chosen one of them and not chosen the other one of them. It's as simple as that. Love is used throughout the Old Testament as the opposite of hate. These are just opposite words. And he, in English, it's like, I mean, you know hate, right? If you say hate, there's some emotion behind it, and you don't, you kind of spit it when you say it. Uh, I mean, hate means that. But that's not the case. It is simply the opposite of love in the Old Testament. The language is, in fact, one of covenant relationship. And here's what God is simply saying. He's saying, the Esau... I did not choose, and the Edomites, I did not choose to be my people. But Jacob and the Israelites, I chose them to be my people, despite the fact that they had never done anything wrong. Now, here's the other part of this deal, before we move on, that you really need to understand. The Edomites, after this, make very clear choices to be very evil. I mean, you can read throughout the Old Testament and they become a pretty wicked people group. Esau, the first one, actually seemed to be like a pretty good guy. I mean, if you read the story, I like Esau a lot. But his family line ends up being pretty evil. In fact, they're so evil that when the Israelites, who are their relatives, try to wander through their land, if you read about it in the book of Exodus, the Edomites are the ones, and other nations didn't do this, who said, no, you can't come through here. If you come through, then we're going to war with you. As you move on in the story of the Edomites, you see that they may have helped, history tells us, the Chaldeans, as the Chaldeans attacked Jerusalem and took it over and conquered it. So they're not only against the Israelite people, but they're now ganging up on the Israelite people. They become in the Old Testament a generalization for all things wicked. No joke. I mean, if you're an Edomite, then that means that you're a bad person. That's how evil they become. Isaiah 63, Ezekiel 35 and 36 speak of the eschatological judgment of Edom. These people become very bad. And so here is what you see next. I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build up, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land of people always under the wrath of the Lord. God says this. I didn't choose them. They've become evil. And I'm not going to let them prosper. He even uses uh, almighty there. The uh, Malachi uses almighty about God. It's a military term. Shows the strength of God. Not only is God against these people, but literally he's not going to let them rebuild. And here's what's really fascinating. If you like history like me, and there's a lot of history in this sermon today. But, but this is just fascinating to me. History tells us that God was right. I mean, what happens to the Edomites is that the Nabataeans come in and they take over the Edomites and the Edomites are forced to go into exile and they're not living in their land anymore. And they say, we're going to come back and we'll take over those guys and we will rebuild our temple. And then history tells us that this group, they actually become quite the civilization until the Romans take them over 106 and we never hear from the Edomites again. So God isn't just hypothetically saying, 
yeah, they're going to kind of say they can rebuild and I won't let them. God is saying someday they will try to rebuild. But I will make sure that out of their wickedness, because they're not chosen, that I will destroy them. Now here, here is what you need to understand. You might ask this question. You might say, how is it that God says that he has chosen one group and not another? I don't know. God had that right. He said, I want this to be the kid that I start this nation through. It might feel unfair to us. It might feel wrong. But, but realistically, if we were looking at it from a fair point of view, God shouldn't have chosen anybody. I mean, God should have just said, let's smite them all and start again. But God chose Jacob. And here's what the New Testament says, using the same thing, Romans 9, 10 through 15. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, what Paul is saying is that God doesn't need to fit into our box. He can choose whoever he wants to choose. And in fact, notice, because this passage gets used a lot, Romans 9, about kind of God's destruction. But notice there that what he, he focuses on is the love and the compassion of God. God is saying, I can have compassion and mercy and grace on whoever I choose to. In the Old Testament, he chose Jacob. And now, through Jesus, he has chosen to offer that to everybody. Listen to this. Listen to these words. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 1 Timothy 2, 3. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, in the New Testament, what we find is that even though God could smite anybody He wants, He could send anybody to hell without another question because He is God, He has chosen to offer every one of us His grace through the cross. And we may look and we may say, how have you loved us? And the answer is always Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. No matter what goes on around you, no matter how bad things get, you have an opportunity to be the chosen one of God because you have the opportunity to accept the gift of Jesus. And the gift is simply this, that he came down out of heaven to die on a cross to take the punishment, the hellish punishment for your sins. And God looks in the book of Malachi and in the New Testament and says, Look, if you ever need proof of my love, it's in the fact that I gave my very own son to come down and die for your sins. I was talking to my friend after the funeral last week and my friend's dad, who I'm also very close with. They said something super profound to me. It was just in conversation. It was in passing. They weren't trying to sound spiritual or anything like that. But they said, as they've gone through it, this thought has come to their mind. It hurts a lot to lose a grandson, to lose a son. And yet, the God of the universe suffered that type of pain by giving his son for us. 
I mean, this is, this is, I'm looking into the eyes of a person whose six-month-old baby died. And they're looking in my eyes and they're saying, I'm blown away at the love of God. And I understand it greater now because I understand how much it hurts to lose a son. You see, it's easy for us to look at the situations in life and ask the question that the Jews are asking. And we look at them and we say, well, that's kind of crazy because look, God chose you. Well, the truth is, God's chosen us if we give our lives to Jesus. There's some of you who are currently rejecting that gift. You are not chosen. And and here's what we're going to see as we move through the book of Malachi. God's looking down and he's saying, hey, if you haven't chosen me, if you're not one of my chosen people, if you're not, then eventually you're going to be destroyed and you will never be rebuilt. We're going to talk about a passage of scripture at the end that, that literally the language is this. The language is that God sets a fire to those who are not chosen. They burn up. And then all of the people who are chosen are dancing on their ashes because they're celebrating the goodness of their God because they are the chosen ones. That's the imagery of Malachi 4 right there. It's one of the most provocative statements in all of the Bible. And what the New Testament shows us, and you need to pay attention to this, is that we have the opportunity to be the loved ones. And here's the thing. We talk about a distinct faith, right? We talk about looking different than the rest of the world. We talk about a, a faith that is satisfying and fulfilling and makes us want to get out of bed in the morning and do something for God. And right at the beginning, you must recognize, and, and God knew this, and this is why he says it to the Israelites in the book of Malachi, you must recognize how much God loves you. He loved you enough to choose you. And until you grasp that the God of the universe gave His Son, that He allowed for His body to be broken and His blood to be poured out so that you could enter into a relationship with Him until you fully grasp that, then you cannot have a distinct faith. You will always go through life going, eh, I kind of believe Jesus died for me. That's great. I kind of get that. That's cool. Whatever. You know, I'm a Christian. But until you fathom the love of Jesus, what it means, then you'll always find every religion dissatisfying. For me, it happened when I was 17 years old. Many of you have heard this story before, but it bears repeating here because it was kind of that moment for me. Go through life and, you know, you have hardships, you have things that you go through and... um, God had always kind of been there for me, I had felt like, and I felt pretty good. I mean, why did I go through some of these things? But, but God always had taken care of me. And at 17 years old, for the very first time, I understood what a sinner I was and how much love it took for God to give His Son to pay for my sins. For the first time, I understood that, and it changed everything about me. And so what I want you to hear this morning simply this. I know that at times in life you will go, really God, do you love me? Do you really care about me? Is it really, do I really matter to you? And the answer that God will always give 
has been given it for 2,500 years is listen to me. You were chosen if you have given me your life. You have been chosen if you have accepted my gift of salvation. You are chosen if you believe that Jesus came, my son came, and he died for your sins. And so my hope for you, my hope for you is that today you will grasp the love of Jesus more fully than ever before. Because we're going to go through this book and we'll talk about divorce. And we'll talk about serving God fully and not half-heartedly. And we'll talk about serving God when it doesn't seem like anything good is coming out of it. And continuing on in the faith no matter what. And we'll talk about how all those things make a distinct faith. But you won't do any of it. If you don't understand the love of God for you. Will you pray with me, Lord? It's mind-blowing that you would come and you would die for our sins. Your son would come here and, and die. Lord and, and man and I know some people God who have lost children and it affects them deeply and it affects them daily and yet you chose to offer that gift to us you've allowed for us to be your chosen people all of us who come to you and I thank you so much Lord that you want each of us to come to a knowledge of you and I thank you so much Lord that, that you desire that all men be saved and I thank you so much God that you died for the sins of the whole entire world so that all of us have an opportunity to accept that gift and we can all even when when everything is going wrong we can look and say you know what I know God loves me because I'm chosen so I thank you for that today and God, I just want to pray for the people who sit in front of me this morning. Lord, I know that there's people here that are just wondering how you have loved them. They may even believe with all their hearts that you do, but they're just looking around going, how? And today I, I pray that they'd be touched once again by your story of salvation. And God, there, there are people here, I know it, that really have never grasped your love for them. Lord, that they might believe that you came and you died and they might believe in, in the word of, that you've given us in, in your book, the Bible, and they might kind of have these mental ideas that, that the story is real. But Lord, I pray today you would just, just break their hearts with your love and how amazing it is. Lord, it is because of your love that, that we can that we can get through life and have a distinct faith. And so, God, I love you because you first loved me. I thank you for your amazing, amazing love. I ask these things in your name. Amen. Today, I uh, just want to ask that you'll come forward and grab communion. And, and, and as you do, the band's just going to play behind you for a, a little longer than normal. And so I pray that you, you would sit in your chair and you would reflect on how amazing this love truly is. This love that would cause, move the God of the universe to die, to send his son to die for your sins. And so instead of just kind of, I won't even come back up, but the band's just going to play and, and together as a church and, and in your own personal space as, as you kind of reflect on that, I just pray that you'd be impacted by it. That, that, and that's my hope for you. Not that you'll go, yep, I, I remember Jesus, that you did communion. But, but in your own heart, to just let it sweep you away. And so will you come forward, when you take this, you can take it on your own time. And the band will lead us in a couple more songs. But, but come forward and get it and then just reflect in your chair. Be touched by the love of God.